0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. It's a, I can't see any of you, but uh, uh, but it's a pleasure to, to uh, have you all here, uh, uh, and it's uh, nice for me to be able to present some of our research. So I'm going to talk about... Materials for energy conversion, and I'm going to sort of illustrate the talk uh, around materials for white LED lighting. And apropos energy conversion and energy efficiency, I want to say that there are two aspects to our wanting a cleaner, more renewable energy future. We, of course, want cleaner sources of energy like solar and wind, but we can also be much more efficient on the usage side. So, in fact, the systems that I'm going to tell you about, white light emitting diodes, have already saved enough energy in the United States that they account for, you know, many tens of coal and nuclear, fire power, nuclear powered electricity power plants not needing to have been built. Okay, so energy efficiency can be as important for our energy future as renewable energy. So, uh, uh, the... I have to thank some people before I start, some of my graduate students, some of my colleagues, and some industrial partners with whom we worked. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about strategies for solid-state white lighting or solid-state lighting broadly. So what we do with a light-emitting diode is we directly convert electrical energy into light. Okay, In some sense, it's the opposite of a solar photovoltaic panel. A solar panel converts sunlight into uh, electricity. A light-emitting diode does the opposite. It takes electricity and converts it to sunlight. But what LEDs normally do is they emit a narrow range of colors. Okay? So one way to make white light would be to use LEDs of three different colors, red, green, and blue. Okay? If you combine them properly, you would imagine that the combination of red, green, and blue light looks like white light. Right? because white light is basically the colors of the rainbow. Another way to make white light would be to take an ultraviolet light-emitting diode and couple it with materials that are called phosphors, and I'm going to tell you more about phosphors, and these phosphors may convert the ultraviolet light into visible radiations. Okay? This is a strategy that some people are now beginning to look at. The common strategy to make white light from a light emitting diode is you take a blue light emitting diode, and the material, the critical material there is called gallium nitride. You take a blue light emitting diode, and you combine it with a yellow phosphor, but you go through a process of partial conversion. You don't convert all of the blue to yellow, you convert some of the blue to yellow. So the original blue mixes with the new yellow and that combination looks white, right? All of you know that blue and yellow is white, right? Because you're probably accustomed to mixing paints, and blue and yellow is green. But if you're mixing light, blue and yellow is actually white. They're complementary colors. And this is how we have uh, uh, devices like this lamp shown here on the right, which is highly efficient. It's a warm white LED bulb that you can buy. It uses, you know, almost... uh, 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 five sixths less energy as a incandescent lamp does it 's quite bright it lasts for a very long time in fact uh, LED lights uh, in principle you should be able to put them in and then change them when you change the roof of your house okay um, and 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 in the early days of LED lights the the Quality of the light was not very appealing, but this is no longer true. It lights up instantly. You can dim it, unlike a compact fluorescent. And unlike a compact fluorescent, it doesn't have mercury. You know, all compact fluorescent lamps have mercury in them. And this is why, when they die, they have to be treated like hazardous waste. Okay? So, and Cree gives you a 10-year warranty, but 25,000 hours of use means it should actually last much longer. So the technology is based on this strategy of taking a blue LED and converting it with a yellow phosphor. And this idea of making white light with electronics with a light emitting diode <coughs> actually has a strong basis in UCSB research. So, the gentleman on the left, Herb Cromer, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000, developed the theory of what are called heterostructures, and this is what allowed bright light emitting diodes to be developed. I mean, I'm not going to go into the details of this. It also gave rise to laser diodes. And then uh, my colleague Shuji Nakamura, who won the 2014 Nobel Prize, developed gallium nitride as a lighting material that emits blue light. And blue is very important. So prior to this invention, there was not a source of bright blue LED light. And blue is important because blue is close to violet and indigo. It's at the high-energy end of the visible spectrum. So once you have blue, you can take these materials called phosphors and make the rest other colors. Okay? You can't do this in the other direction. You can't take red and readily make blue out of it. But you can take blue and make red out of it. And, sorry, the, the bright light is also making me sneeze. And uh, if you're curious, that's called the photic sneeze reflex. And I have it. And people who have the photic sneeze reflex can't become fighter pilots. It's a, it's a good thing I do science <laughs> instead of being a fighter pilot. So I like to show this chart. Uh, uh, I like to show this just to show that sometimes it can take a long time for materials to come on stream. So gallium nitride was actually first prepared in 1932, but it took till the 1990s before Shuji Nakamura could make uh, blue lasers and blue LEDs out of gallium nitride. Okay, so how does it work? Okay, so the bl- this is a, a scheme of of the gallium nitride device. The actual device is tiny. Everything else is to remove heat and to to supply current and so on. And from this device, you get blue light coming out. What you do is you put on top of this the special material, the phosphor. and, And it's called a phosphor even though it doesn't really have anything to do with the element phosphorus. And the phosphor converts some of the blue light to yellow light. And the phosphor also helps mix the two. So if you look at the spectrum of it, this is the blue coming out directly from the device. This is the, this is the blue that's, in fact, allowed to come out. Uh, and some of this blue has been used up to create the yellow. Okay? This, this high-energy blue is absorbed and re-released at lower energies. So this combination actually looks white to the eye. Okay, So if you actually looked at a spectrum like this, you would not be able to see that it's blue and yellow. It would just look white. And that's how a white LED lamp works. So our interest today is to talk about this yellow material, the phosphor. Okay? And a typical material, this has been known since 1967, the year of my birth, developed in the Netherlands. So it's based on this structure type that's called a garnet. Okay? Garnets, as you may have heard, are semi-precious gemstones. People wear them on their ears and around their necks and on their wrists. And uh, these are some of the names of mineral garnets. They have really very pretty names. Uh, I, in fact, that's the only reason I've spelled them out here. Uh, they have these, these formulae with, uh, with aluminum and silicon and iron and manganese and calcium, etc. But the garnets of interest to us just have the elements yttrium, aluminum and oxygen. Okay? And these yttrium atoms are indicated here are basically the host structure. So what that means is I'm going to actually use the structure and then I'm going to replace some of these yttrium atoms with cerium, which is another rare earth element, another uh, another lanthanide. And when I do this, that's when I get my phosphor. And the way it works is based on the electronic energy levels of cerium. Now, the details which are, are given here are perhaps not that important. What you do need to know is that there are electrons in the F levels of cerium, so there are some lower energy electrons in the cerium, that when the light comes in, it, the blue light comes in, it excites to these levels, to these higher levels. Okay? When this electron... So it picks up energy from the blue light, gets excited, but when it drops down again, it loses some of the energy, and it drops down in the yellow-orange region. Okay? So that's basically the way we take blue light and use this phosphor material to convert it to longer wavelengths, notably yellow and orange. Okay. So when I started researching this some years ago with my students and postdocs, I was curious that people had worked on this material for a very long time, but not a single person appeared to have said, this material is very good for these reasons. So we decided that we wanted to study it very, very carefully in order to understand why it worked as well as it did. Okay? We thought, if we understand this particular garnet, yttrium aluminum garnet with cerium in it, then we would be able to use this understanding to design new materials, potentially even better materials. Okay? So it turned out to be a challenging task for one reason why it's challenging is the physics is very hard. The way, you, the way the electrons get excited from the F levels to the D levels and then they drop down again. This is a hard thing. You can't just go go to, the, go to a computer and do a calculation. The other reason it's a hard problem is we don't put a lot of cerium in this lattice. We, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the lattice of the structure of the garnet that I just showed you, we pull out, out of every hundred yttriums, we maybe pull out one or two, and replace them with cerium. So it's a very dilute amount of cerium in the structure. So that all of this makes it quite challenging to study both experimentally and computationally. So our strategy, and there's a lot of information here, but our strategy was to basically, at the time we did this some years ago, was to use every possible tool that we could find that were state-of-the-art that allowed us to closely study how the cerium changed the structure. So we used uh, we had to actually go to national labs to do these experiments. We couldn't do these in-house. We had to, to go to Argonne National Lab, which is near Chicago, to do these experiments here, shown on the left. Uh, and we had to go to Los Alamos National Labs in New Mexico to do these experiments, shown on the right. On the left, we used X-rays to study the material. And on the right, we used neutrons. I think most of you know what neutrons are. They're a fundamental particle that, you know, it's neutrons and protons in the nucleus of atoms. Well, neutrons turn out to be very powerful for probing crystal structures of, like these. So when we did this, the big learning that we took away from this was that this particular material, the yttrium aluminum garnet with some cerium in it, is a very very rigid lattice okay it doesn't it's not floppy it's very very rigid uh in other words it's a it's a very hard material that uh, uh when you warm it up you know in 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 all materials in all crystals atoms move at all temperatures but as you warm them warm up the crystal you could it's not technically accurate to say this but you could describe the atoms as moving more and more, or displacing more and more from where they are supposed to displace. And those displacements, if you do careful crystallography, you can plot them out in what are called displacement parameters. If you, see these, if you see these little, these are the oxygen atoms in the structure, if you look at these oxygen atoms, they have a particular shape, they're not spheres. That's because what we've actually depicted here is not the atom itself, but it's the way the atom moves okay, at room temperature. What we learned by doing these experiments that in this particular structure type, these atoms don't move very much because they're so tightly held in the structure. Okay. In fact, you know, if you've ever, if if you are uh, in the business of working with garnet, semi-precious gemstones, you can actually buy yttrium uh, aluminum garnet and cut it and shape it into jewelry. It looks a little bit like diamond when it's when it's the clean yttrium aluminum garnet. The natural garnets are colored. But yttrium aluminum garnet without cerium is clear. It looks like that. It it has high refractive index, so it looks like uh, a little bit like diamond or cubic zirconia. It's also very hard like diamond and cubic zirconia. So it turned out to be very, very rigid, as seen by the very small size of these displacements. And we used this information to go back and to look at the structure to find out why it's very rigid. And the reason the structure is rigid is because it looks like two networks that are three-dimensionally interpenetrated. You know, there's one network going inside the other in the structure type in in a three-dimensional way extending through the whole crystal. Okay. We also figured out that we could characterize this rigidity through something called the Debye temperature. And the Debye temperature, the, if, uh, the higher the Debye temperature, the more rigid the lattice is. Okay. And we could actually measure this from doing the kinds of experiments that I just told you about. In this particular material, the Debye temperature is between 600 and 700 K. That's kel—that's uh, a temperature on the Kelvin scale. And this is a very high temperature for materials of this type. Okay. So what we learned from this study uh, rather extensive study is that yag is very rigid we learned some other things but yag is very rigid this is the important take home message so we started asking is yag yttrium aluminum garnet a good phosphor host because of its rigidity okay and there were reasons to think that this is true we actually at around the same time we came upon our our, our industrial collaborators gave us this other material Uh, 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 This this time it's a compound that has lanthanum, silicon, and nitrogen in a particular ratio. And this is the structure shown on the left. And this material actually is even more rigid than YAG. So it's one of the best phosphors that we have ever studied. And one characteristic of how good it is as a phosphor is most phosphor materials, remember they absorb blue and they emit yellow, or more generally speaking, they absorb a shorter wavelength and emit a longer wavelength. Well, this process becomes less and less efficient at high temperatures, but this particular material, even at 500 Kelvin, if you look at the plot right on top, even at 500 Kelvin, every light particle or photon that comes in is still emitted, it's not wasted, which means it's efficient even at a very high temperature, which is very, very unusual. And again, we attributed this to the rigidity of the lattice. And we, again, saw this by doing the same kinds of experiments with X-rays and neutrons and looking at these uh, 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 displacement parameters, basically these little uh, objects uh, that look like, they don't look like spheres, they look a little more like squashed spheres or, or, uh, or spheroids. Great. So this idea that rigidity is important, you know, we proposed it, we saw another example, we said, can we do something with it? So in the molecular world, and I'm showing you two molecules on top, so molecules are not like crystals, right? You can study these in solution, for example, or in the gas phase. These two molecules, the top one is called biphenyl, and the bottom the bottom one is called fluorine. They are both fluorophores, meaning they are also work like phosphors. They can take light at higher energy and emit light at lower energy. But the molecule biphenyl, which chemists will recognize as very floppy because it has a single carbon-carbon bond between those two rings, the floppiness of biphenyl prevents it from being a good fluorophore. But in the molecule fluorine, you've actually made that single bond into a middle ring with five members, and that makes the whole molecule very rigid, and fluorine is a good phosphor, okay, or a good luminal. a a good luminophore, good fluorophore. So, we said, in the molecular world, we can actually just inspect the molecules and ask whether they are rigid or floppy. How do we do this in the solid, for a solid? We already said the Debye temperature appears to be a good method of finding out whether something's rigid or not. We said... We knew that we could calculate the Debye temperature for a crystal. We said maybe we should use the Debye temperature as uh, as something that indicates whether the whether the crystal is rigid or not. And furthermore, we thought if we could use this as a proxy for whether something's going to be a good phosphor or not. So, what does it? What do I mean when I use the word proxy? I think I can illustrate this with an example. A proxy is something which is not a direct measure of a property or a phenomenon, but it's an indicator. Okay, And this is a study that came out of Google some years ago. So what Google did was they looked at the spread of influenza-like illnesses in three different states, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And they looked at, and this is this is the axis here, the y-axis is the percentage of these influenza-like illnesses. And on the x-axis is the year. And what they did was, they went to the Center for Disease Control and looked at the data that the CDC had for the spread of influenza, and they compared this with Google search terms. So people were looking, for example, for flu medication or flu remedies, you know, should I eat when I have a flu, or should I, what fluid should I drink when I have a flu? And they used that to look, to see where the flu's, flu was spreading and and what the sort of extent of that was. And you see, there's a pretty good match, right? Okay, something went crazy around 2008 as they tried to make predictions, but it's a pretty good match for all these other years. So this is what I call a proxy, okay? They didn't want to go to the CDC. They didn't want to wait in, in hospital waiting rooms and count the number of people coming in with flus. They just sat in at their computer stations in Mountain View and looked at what people were typing into their Google search bar. So that's a good proxy. So I'm going to use the Debye temperature as a proxy. So we are, in our first attempt, we took this set of crystal structures and we calculated the Debye temperature for all of them. Uh, and, and you can actually look at these structures in a different way that sort of emphasizes the connectivity, and you can see that some of these structures, like this one here and maybe this one here, are more connected than structures like this. So these you would expect would have a higher Debye temperature, and indeed that's what we found. We compared our calculated Debye temperatures with experiments, and that we verified that we're doing a reasonably good job. So the, these are the calculations here and this is the experiment for a, for a bunch of systems, including simple, the simple metal silver here and a simple oxide alumina or sapphire here and we did the measurements in multiple ways. We use this to say make a plot like this. Here on this axis, the x-axis, is the calculated Debye temperature and here on the y-axis is the quantum yield. The quantum yield is the ratio of yellow photons for every blue photon. So ideally, you want this to be one. right? You want every photon going in at higher energy to come out at lower energy without any loss of photons. And we found some sort of correlation. We found that the higher the Debye temperature, the higher the quantum yield. So remember, we calculate the Debye temperature for the pure crystal. But when we measure the quantum yield, we actually put a little bit of cerium in and look at the optical properties of the cerium. So yttrium aluminum garnet and that particular nitride material that I just spoke about are pretty high up, both in the Debye temperature axis and on the quantum yield axis. But there are these other materials with poorer connectivity and hence lower Debye temperatures that do not make as good phosphors. So this doesn't look like much, but it's probably the most important research, probably the most important plot that's come out of my group. Because phosphor materials have been studied since the 1920s and 30s in relative depth, but no one has ever said, here is how you can figure out whether something's going to be a good phosphor or not—at least not in the solid state. Okay, so we've gone on now to to we've added an axis here. There's the, uh, there's a the band gap, but we've gone on now to look at a lot of materials, and we've made a sorting diagram that looks like this. On the y-axis, you have the calculated Debye temperature. On the x-axis, you have uh, the band gap and 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 the details of the band gap. Uh, at this point, it doesn't matter. But just, be, just just, please recognize that this in this plot, the good phosphors live in this top right corner. Now, a plot like this is doubly useful to me. It teaches me how to find new materials. But more importantly, it tells me where in material space I'd be wasting my time. If one of my students said, I have a material. I think it will be a good phosphor. I can say, let's do a calculation. And then the calculation comes back saying the Debye temperature is only near 300 Kelvin. I'm going to say, nope, that's going to be a waste of time, right? So when we are guiding new materials discovery, we don't just need some way of finding out where the new materials, where the better new materials are going to be. We are also going to, we also need a way to tell us, oh no, that's going to be a waste of time. (coughs) Okay, so this (coughs) um, uh, plots like this make us very happy. (coughs) <coughs> these little crosses here were when we did this work <coughs> these little crosses were things that we had not yet made and measured <coughs> and when we since then we when we have gone made and measured them we fo- we found that our sorting diagram is generally true that the good phosphors live here and the bad phosphors live here okay so we came up with this and then we had an opportunity to test this. And the way we tested it was to look at a class of materials that have been known again since the 1960s. It's a solid solution between barium silicate and strontium silicate. And the best phosphors are about half-half, half half barium, half strontium. Okay, So that's actually seen somewhere here. These are intermediate compositions with different amounts of strontium. So 100% strontium, would be uh, the SR2 compound and 0% strontium would be the BA2 compound. And you notice that, that that this is now the lifetime of luminescence. Uh, it's just one way of saying seeing how good your phosphor is. And it's flat as a function of temperature until it turns over. Once it starts turning over, that's when the phosphor is losing its efficacy. Okay? And you see here that this is the best phosphor because this has the highest turnover temperature. It also turns out this is an experimental measurement. It also has the highest Debye temperature. So, this for me was really wonderful. We do measurements between 2 Kelvin and 5 Kelvin of the Debye temperature, and it allows us to predict between 300 and 500 Kelvin which the best phosphor is going to be. Okay. So, when we did this, we didn't actually know, we didn't actually fully understand why this is the best material, this uh, intermediate composition. It turns out that in the structure, There are two sites, a slightly smaller one and a slightly larger one. And when you're in this half-half region, the strontium goes and sits in the slightly smaller site, and the barium sits in the slightly larger site. And as a consequence, both of these ions are perfectly happy in the structure. And this gives rise then to the most rigid lattice. And the most rigid lattice gives rise to the best phosphor properties. So I've come nearly to the end of my time. So with that, I hope I've been able to, for one thing, teach you how white white light emission from an LED lamp works. And secondly, how we think about materials by design, how we try to screen better materials. And the way we do this is really by understanding known materials. So with that, I thank you for your attention. And uh, I'm happy to take questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.